When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Jota, Dundalk and Cavan. Order your new 221 Renault today from our extensive Renault range. Guaranteed delivery and low-rate APR finance. Visit blackstonemotors.ie. You're very welcome to Midweek Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Let's get straight to business this afternoon. My first guest, well, once of women with opinions on Late Lunch, a familiar voice here on LMFM Radio, a businesswoman, entrepreneur, who headed off to mentor other prospective business people in a new career. Well, I was, uh, She was with me, I'm sure it was about a year ago. We were just talking about she moved house at the time. Uh, she's back with me 12 months on. Sarah McLaughlin. Hello again. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm really, really good. Thanks for joining me on the show. Well, it's been some year, Sarah, for you. Tell them what happened to you. It sure has, Jerry. So I was talking to you almost a year to the day. Um, I was in the middle of moving house. My husband was um, not too impressed that I stopped to chat to Jerry. But hey, Jerry, he's not the only man in my life. And we had a good chat. <laughs> and uh, that was the 17th of November last year. Then we went on to have our first year in our, our first Christmas in our new house. Um, in the new year, we all got COVID in February, and um, really, I suppose I was just getting back, um, getting back into my stride after that, um, getting back to running and doing the things that I enjoy. And um, I was very busy at work. Um, I was um, working on a major project that kind of came to a head on the twenty fifth of May, and that night I was in the shower and I. It felt two lumps in my breast and I never noticed them before and I um, thought oh my god where the hell did these come from but I thought well you know it must be an infection or something because it just appeared really very suddenly mm. so anyway I didn't dilly dally I went to the doctor the next day and was referred to the breast clinic in Beaumont and told that they were cancerous. As simple as that and as quickly as that. Were you on your own when you got that news? And did it just was it just delivered like that to you? It, it kind of, I suppose, was a bit drip-fed because um, on the 26th of May when I went to the doctor, I kind of suspected myself that the doctor didn't give me antibiotics. Hmm. And I have an ovarian cyst, which had given me a lot of trouble in, in 2019, 2020. And I was blitzed with antibiotics, first of all, to try and see, uh, you know, to figure out was the pain coming from an infection. Mm. So that was one thing. She didn't give me antibiotics. Um, also, the, the lumps weren't painful. 
they were a little bit sore. Um, but and I suppose if I'm to look back and think, did I have any other symptoms? I I did have some soreness in my left breast um, in the months previous to that. And do you know what I silly me put it down to? When the shops finally reopened, I went and got myself some new sports bras, and I thought maybe I, my skin was a bit sensitive to the new fabrics. Yes. And it would only be after running that I would sort of feel this and I would think, oh, I must go and get that checked out. Then I thought it could be a menopausal symptom. So I was meaning to go to the doctor to figure out, you know, was was there something going on with me? And then when this happened, I went straight there and she I, I could I could sort of see it in her reaction, although she was very good at hiding it. She told me afterwards she didn't want to alarm me. She said she knew straight away, but she said I knew you'd be waiting a few weeks for the um for the uh appointment to come up in Beaumont and um I didn't want you know you to be alarmed all that time. It was also the week of the cyber attack, Jerry. Mm. It was the twenty fifth of um Mar- May and that was the twenty first of May. So she told me that she was going to fax the referral rather than email it so it wouldn't get lost in, in cyberspace. And there we are laughing at people who still have faxes. Thank goodness people still have faxes. Yeah. And um, then um, she also rang me at the end of the week and said, have you heard from Beaumont Jet? She said, I'm off next week. Don't leave it till I come back. So I knew from her that it was serious. Then when I got my appointment for Beaumont, um, I went on my own, although my husband, Sarajit, did have the day off work, but we figured in the end that he wouldn't be allowed in. Mm. And we, so I went on my own. Now, when the doctor examined me, I knew from his uh, reaction straight away that he knew what he was looking at. And he asked me that I want to know, but he was sending me downstairs then for a plethora of tests. And I'm somebody, Jerry, who likes a full story. I don't like half stories. So I didn't want him to tell me what he thought it was. He was sending me for mammograms, biopsies, blood tests, also x-rays, all sorts of things. And I want, and he said, we'll have you back in a few days for the results. So I said to him, he said, do you want do you have any questions for me? And I said, do you mind if I wait and get the results in a few days? And he said, that's fair enough. And he said, I just want you to know this hospital has really good outcomes. And I thought, OK, really good outcomes for what? He knows this is cancer. Mm. So at that stage, the doctor said to me, are you on your own? Would you like to phone somebody? He said, do you have a phone? Would you like to use my phone? Which, you know, was super kind. Everybody was very, very kind to me all the way. And I said, um, let me think about it. So I, because I was doing so much waiting, go from one area to, to another, I kind of used that time to just be calm and try and process all that rather than calling my husband to come down and join me. Um, and then it was a week later. So that was the 15th of June. It was a week later on the 22nd of June. We both went to Beaumont and we sat down with the consultant and he gave us the full news and full diagnosis. And I wasn't on my own that day. Mm. And that diagnosis did confirm what you suspected. What happened from there? Had you surgery? I did. So I suppose in that week while I was waiting for the results, my GP phoned me actually in the meantime and said the mammogram is showing a malignant tumour. And I thought, I, you know, I kind of thought I'm st- I'm going to, I told Sarajit obviously at that stage, but we didn't tell the kids and my mum and my siblings and, and so on because we 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 decided people want to know people have questions then what stage what's the treatment what's the prognosis and we had no answers for them so we both decided we'd wait until the 22nd to tell everybody 
But um, I did make a few phone calls. I phoned a friend of mine who had had cancer a few years previous and asked her, what kind of a time frame are we looking at here? When when will I when will they have me in if you know if I need treatment, if I need surgery? And she said, expect very prompt treatment. She said, when are you going in? And I said, Tuesday. She said, expect to start next week between Tuesday and Friday. So I told my manager at work that um, I, I had already told her that I had I needed a day off on the 15th to go to Beaumont. And I, so I said I needed a day off on the 22nd. And she said, is everything OK? And I said, I, I don't know. I can't really say too much at the minute. But I said, just, you know, we were starting to make plans. I said, we've been working on a major project up until the 25th of May. And we were starting to make onward plans. And I said, don't count me into all your plans because I don't know if I'll be here. So on the 22nd, they told me that I was having surgery on the 25th, that Friday, to have full mastectomy because I had two tumours and they suspected it had gone into my nose. So they said if it shows up, they they inject you with a nuclear dye to see if it has gone into the nose. And um, I showed up as positive. So they removed my nodes also in that surgery. That was on the 25th of June. You said you were calm you know, between leaving the doctor and having those tests, you know, back on the 15th of June, ahead of surgery and all that entailed, did you remain calm or how did you deal with that? Um, I had my, I had meltdowns. I was really busy, actually, and that week getting finished up at work, getting ready to go for surgery, um, making a will, um, writing letters to my family in case I didn't come back. Um, I was really busy um, and I, so I kind of stayed, that's how I function, Jerry. I stay calm doing stuff. If I, if I wasn't doing something, I'd freak out. So I had meltdowns and I've had moments along the way where my brain melts down and it's like a shutter. It's like a shutter coming down. You know, when you turn a key in a shutter in a shop and the shutter just comes down. That's what happens in my brain and I can't function anymore and I go to bed for a while and rest and I find sleep to be super in dealing with shock and, and trauma. Come back to the point of you and Sarjeet knowing and your children and your family and everybody around you that's close to you. That time when you don't tell them and and, yeah. and, and when to tell. Yeah, do you know, in between, right, so there was a weekend in between. It happened to be Father's Day. And I wanted, I thought, this is our last weekend of normality for quite some time. I want to have a nice Father's Day for Sarajit. And we actually, we started a little business this year. We we used to be in the food business, as you know. Sarajit's a wonderful chef. So we started a business called Sarajit's Pantry. And we cook meal packs and um, sell them online. And uh, sarajit'spantry.ie, just give me a plug in there. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're the greatest for it. Go on. So um, we were busy on the Saturday with Sarge's Pantry and then busy on the Sunday with Father's Day. So, you know, I managed to sort of stay calm by staying busy and kind of not let the kids know that what was going on. But then when we came back from Beaumont that day, we sat the two girls down there in secondary school. So they were here and we sat the two of them down and said and told them the news and talked to them about it and explained everything that we could and told them the prognosis was good. I was told that it was early stage and fully treatable and ex- the doctors expected me to make a full recovery and, and to be in treatment for a year and then, then get my life back. And then my little boy is nine. He came in from primary school and it was, you know, all then 
um, gung-ho to tell him when he came in and he bounded through the door. He had just won student of the year. And I was so proud of him. And I had told my mum on Zoom at lunchtime. And my friend went and sat with mum in Donegal and held her hand while I was telling her. So then when we rang her at three o'clock to tell her that Sachin had won student of the year, she thought when she saw my number coming up, she thought it was, you know, kind of a follow up to the lunchtime call. And it was to tell her this news. So then we had to park my news because he just got really good news, you know. So later on, then maybe about half four, I told him and again, explained everything to him, told him that I would promise to tell him the truth. They said to me, do you promise you won't die? I said, folks, nothing in life is certain, but I can promise you that the doctors have told me I won't die. And then in the evening time, I had a Zoom call with my siblings who were based all over Europe and we, I told them. I can see the little lad as you described him coming in from school, full of the joys. Mm-hmm. And then you have to tell him this news. When you have the surgery, Sarah, and the mastectomy, mm-hmm. and for any woman to have a mastectomy, many have double mastectomies, this is life-saving for you. But you know what I'm getting at? For a woman to lose a breast or some too, how, how do you get your head around that? How do you deal with that? I think, Jerry, it's something that possibly comes with later shock. I think at the time you just need to get the cancer out. But I'm only speaking from my experience, actually. That's how I felt. But I think a lot of people feel like that. They just need the cancer gone. And actually, then the technical term is I had cancer. Now I don't have cancer anymore. It's gone. And, you know, for my family, for my kids, that was all also a relief to, to, be, to know that they were cutting it out and throwing it in the bin. Well, after they'd analysed it, obviously. And that's the end of that. Hmm. Um. But I am told that there's, there is delayed shock down the line. You're actually very busy when you're in treatment. You know, after the surgery, then I was six weeks waiting to start chemo. And I spent that time doing as much physio as possible. Um, my two arms, you can see me on the webcam, Jerry. my two arms are the same length again, which means I can swim. Um, my, I could only get my right arm up, or sorry, my left arm up to about my right elbow after surgery. Um, so I really wanted to get my arm working again. So I, I focused, I, I focused, I wasn't allowed to swim actually during that time, but um, I, I, I did, you can do walking up the wall with your arms and different um, physio exercises. So I focused on that at that time. Then I started chemo. My first batch of chemo made me really sick. I was having it every two weeks and it made me really, really sick for the first week. And then I'd have a good week. And I enjoyed my second week. I must say I would go out of my way to go walking, you meet friends, do, and was, the weather was nice. So, you know, I, I, I didn't, you're not supposed to meet too many people when you're doing chemo, but I was outdoors all the time. Um, and now I'm on a treatment where it doesn't make me sick anymore. I feel quite good now on this chemo, but I'm in every week. So I'm, you're in a day for bloods and then, then a day for treatment. So that's two days I have to go to the Lourdes every week. Um, in the meantime, of course, I have a daughter who breaks a finger, another one who tears a, lig- a cruciate ligament, and I have a son who has a mysterious tummy bug. So yeah, I'm not the only one I'm running <laughs> to the doctor and the hospital for. So it's a busy, you know, a busy family mm. life keeps going. Mm. Um, and um, so, yeah, you're 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 busy. You're you're. I suppose you you. That's the thing that they that they tell me about the delayed shock. That when you go back to work, um, and it's it's all done you can really go into shock then. Yeah, Quite so a few people have told me that. So you're saying to me that this is probably still to come for you? 
It probably is. And the other thing is actually that I am going to have breast reconstruction. So I think in my head, I have, I'm dealing with the, the loss of my breast as a temporary thing. For now, I have only one breast, but I will have two breasts by the time this is all over. Now, hopefully within the year, I will get my new breast and I'll go back to work with two breasts. And not everybody chooses to do that. In fact, only 40% of women choose go for breast reconstruction. Mm. Um, but I might not get back to work within that time frame, haven't had my reconstruction, Jerry, because of COVID and because of, you know, surgeries being cancelled. And quite a few women who had breast cancer last year didn't get the reconstruction. So I imagine that if I have to go back to my my fully fledged life and and put the, kick the can down the road for surgery and I still only have one breast, that w- that will be quite a traumatic thing yes for now as i say i'm dealing with it like you know this is kind of all going to be a package and and also you tidy things up in your head you cope with things by saying oh in my tidy little scenario in my head a b and c happens in quick succession and sometimes then the medics say to you know we can't do that we have to delay your chemo because your blood count's slow or we have to do this or that and so or sometimes you weren't listening. Sometimes I kind of line things up in nice quick succession and they say, no, it doesn't actually happen that neat. They have to have two breaks, two weeks break in between chemo and radiotherapy or whatever it might be. Christmas comes in the middle and stuff like that. So it's not all as neat sometimes as you tie it up in your yes, own Yes, yes. And I know that would be you uh, knowing you yeah. as I do all these years and the way you work as well. But there you go. It does have to be what it is. So your your, your treatment is ongoing. May I say, uh, myself and Louise, yes, we can see you, of course, and uh, we were just saying how well you look and your hair is gorgeous, but that's a wig you're wearing. It is, Jerry. Yeah, it's a movable feast, as I say. I can, can wiggle it around. Um, and when I went to Beaumont and they told me, you know, they gave me a list of things you have to do. Um, there's a woman in Black Rock called Alison McCabe who does breast wear. So I have a prothesis in my bra, um, which makes it look like I have two breasts. Um, another woman called, she's in my phone, is Lorraine Wiggs. Forgive me, Lorraine, I can't remember your last name. But Lorraine's also in Black Rock and she does wigs and hair pieces. And she also sold me my eyebrow um, shadow that you can see it in the webcam, Jerry. Um, I My eyebrows have got very, very thin. Now, thankfully, they didn't fall out, but I very, very thin eyebrows now. So I paint them on and J- Lorraine showed me how to do that. The care you receive along the way is very good. Um, but when I was told, as soon as I heard the word wig, from the nurse in Beaumont, that was a meltdown moment for me. Mm. I just, sure, we all know that people in chemo lose their hair, but when you're told you need to make your wig appointment, wow, you know, that's one that you have to go home. I just had to go to bed that day mm. and sleep off that show. But now I have my wig, and you know, when the weather got cold and I was like, oh, where, I need to get a hat. And then I went, hold on, I have a wig. The pragmatism kicks in then, and the wig keeps my hair warm, my head warm. <laughs> you know, you're just. You're a tonic, to be honest with you, with all you've been through and you're going through. When does your treatment end? Do you know? Well, this is this is the thing, Jerry. That um, I am going to finish chemo for Christmas. Then I have three weeks of radiotherapy in um, uh, January. Then hopefully I have breast reconstruction quickly after that. Hmm. And then after that, I go into five years of hormonal therapy, which will give will which will cause an induced menopause. And that's where I'm told you fall off the cliff emotionally because you go back to work then and you don't have regular hospital appointments. And they say you're not on your own. We're at the end of the phone, but people do feel like they're on their own. Yes. So I'm not looking forward to that, to be honest with you. But I suppose the reason I wanted to talk to you today was to tell people you can there is life after a cancer diagnosis. But, you know, that's not playing down the fact that it's really tough and that I do have five years of hormonal um, 
mm. therapy uh, and menopause to come. No better woman have I ever known to face into what you have and what you will. You're terrific. I have just been sitting here, as I said, hanging on every word and we're getting fantastic messages in, uh, uh, wishing you well, etc. Look, we'll be back to you. I will be back to you. I wish you well over the coming weeks and the Christmas and New Year. And thank you for joining us and telling us your remarkable story today, Sarah. Thanks, Jerry, And thanks, Louise. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lots of reaction. I ain't surprised to Sarah McLaughlin. It would bring tears to a stone. That's an amazing woman there, Jerry, says a listener. Heartbreaking listening to Deirdre's story or to Sarah's story, says Deirdre. Hi, Jerry. I'm just listening to Sarah here. What a brave woman she is. I was up in Beaumont myself last week for a mammogram and ultrasound. The doctor said come back in four weeks. So hopefully I will get back and get the news then uh, Sarah is really the best she's inspired me it's very very hard waiting Jerry. I'm sure it is when you don't know Angela here big hugs to Sarah isn't she just unbelievable 086 1800 658 if you want to WhatsApp or text me to the show 1857 if you'd like to call in Now, my next guest was awoken by British soldiers and RUC officers in the early hours of the morning at his home in Enniskillen on January 20th, 1977. He was arrested on trumped-up charges, taken to Castlereagh Interrogation Centre, where he went through hell for a number of days. He was released without charge, but that incident changed his life forever and he's now put his memories down in word form in a new book. It's called Freeing the Truth and I'm delighted to welcome Bernard O'Connor to Late Lunch. Hello, Bernard. Hello, how are you, Jerry? I'm really good. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I enjoyed the book. I grimaced. I had to put it down at times because it was hard reading, I have to say. Can I ask you this to start? You were a family man with uh, eight children, uh, a school teacher in the primary school there. I know you were involved in the civil rights and that aspect of things when it began. Do you still know why they targeted you and arrested you? No, it was um, really simply it was a policy that they adopted. They brought in a new chief of police into Northern Ireland from England called Kenneth Newman. And they had tried internment in the north where they rounded up uh, a large number of people and interned them for years. And uh, that system had failed. It caused more trouble than it was worth. So they wanted to introduce, uh, they had to get rid of internment because it was smearing the, the, the system for them. So they wanted to bring in what was called legal internment. So the idea was, according to Kenneth Newman, was to round up as many people that they could, that had a background in the civil rights or would have been uh, very much involved in GAA or Irish schools or Catholic schools. And they suspected all of us in in that community as being people who were uh, co-trailing with the IRA and uh, covering up for them. And so therefore, we would have information. So they introduced the system of interrogation in Castlereagh. They took all their detectives to England and trained them in this business in Sandhurst in England. And it was called the Battle for the Mind. So they would arrest people. They were taking between 100 and 150 people a week into Castlereagh and putting them through a torture system there to either get information or get people to sign statements 
to activities that they were unable to solve. And it was really uh, that method that would put people away for a long time in long cash. So you were targeted because of your Irish identity and being involved in the civil rights. I, I still have in my mind's eye when I read about them arriving at your house, your small children asleep, your wife all over the place when they burst in through the door, the guns, the way you were treated, you weren't even dressed, they barely gave you time to. That's a really frightening situation to find yourself in. I'm sure it's still in your mind, your mind's eye, never mind mine. Yeah, my wife was was just uh, out of hospital with our seventh child at the time. And uh, she was only a week old. And, um, you know, we were not expecting this sort of thing. But that's the time they strike. And half five in the morning is the time to get you when you're disorientated. And uh, and yes, two of them, I was standing in my pyjamas in the hallway when two uh, police came through the door. The soldiers had already burst past me. And uh, they put. They asked me, was I Bernard O'Connor? And I said, I was. They knew well I was. And they, they then said that they were arresting me under Section 12 of the Prevention of Terrorism Act. Uh, and they listed out a series of offences that I... And I looked at them and said, you must be joking. And, you know, it was no joke, really. Um, but my witty sort of sense was sort of that you had dismissed this as being stupid. But no, they, they escorted me to the bedroom, stood there while I dressed, took me to the bathroom, um, escorted me there, stayed with me there, and then took me down the stairs, uh, one on each side of me. And there was my two sons, my 10-year-old and my the three-year-old son, looking over the banister at me, went down the stairs. It was a gruesome sight for them and also for me. Mm. I was taken out to a police car, and then they handcuffed me in the police car. They didn't handcuff me before that. So the purpose of one sitting inside me in a police car, me handcuffed with my hands across each other, uh, I suppose that was the, the method of wanting to criminalise you or make you feel that they they were going to do this to you. Mm. And and the arrest was on, on charges of having explosives, arms uh, being behind explosions, which, which proved nonsense in the end of the day, which it was. Now, you were taken first to uh, the local uh, police station in Enniskillen and then transferred uh, to Castlereagh. And when, what went on there was simply horrendous. Tell uh, listeners today the significance of the um, medicine or the medication or the drug, whatever you like to call it, Penbritain. Why was that significant? You were given that in Castle Ray. What, 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 what was the reason for that? Well, when you were in there first, uh, a police doctor was there and he asked me, did I want to be examined? In hindsight, I should have said yes. But mm. there was nothing wrong with me other than the fact that I had a heavy chest cold. And, uh, and so he prescribed Penn Britain tablets for me, for me. He asked me what it was I'd taken at home and I said the doctor had prescribed antibiotics. So he asked me... Uh, would I take Penn Britain? And I said, of course. So the the the, the doctor, the police doctor, gave me those. Um, then I I was then subsequently fingerprinted and photographed uh, with a number across me, and uh, then taken to interrogation. Now, the first interrogation, uh, two guys walked in with a folder under the arm. Uh, they looked at me, and uh, the taller of the two looked at me, and he said, uh, "Man, but you're an insignificant little bastard." And he made me stand on my toes with my knees bent and my arms out in front of me. And uh, I had to stay in that position while they were questioning me. And they were there to prove that I was uh, involved in terrorist activities. And the list of activities included included four murders, 
two armed robberies and 24 explosions. I mean, I, I thought it was hilarious, you know, mm. the, the, the whole thing, you know. Yeah, but the Penbritton uh, drug was given to you too. Was that given to you at the physical end? And you only touched on some of it there. It's horrendous what they tried to put you through, physical and mental. But was the drug given for a reason to try and disorient you? Yeah, well, um, Pen Britain is, is an antibiotic, really. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, the, the, the tea I suspected was even more dangerous. I felt that uh, when you took a drink out of the, a cup of tea, it left a brown ring on the cup every time you, you took a, a drink out of it. So you knew there was something in it that yes. was doing that. Because that doesn't happen, tea, when you, when you drink it. It doesn't, every time you take something out of it, it doesn't leave a ring around the cup. So... Um, but the, the 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 whole process was to to physically uh, and mentally yeah. really drive that you didn't know what you were doing, and they wanted me to sign these statements. Yes, that they had already prepared. Yes, and I see what you're saying now. I see the the Pen Britain linked with whatever was in the tea was another. Uh, what would you say? Tool in their armory to try and get you and break you down that you would some uh, sign something under duress. Look at you went through it. You got out of it. You came out the other side. But it's clear from this book that it's really left its mark all your life. That it didn't end there because the intimidation continued. The phone calls in the middle of the night, and in fact, in April. 83, but for a quirk of faith, you would have been murdered. Yeah, uh, and that, um, first of all, I do want to dismiss what, what you know, just to, to say, I mean, the torture in Castlereagh was that it was uh, stripped naked during that. It was uh, interrogated 22 times yeah. in five days there by 38 different detectives. Mm. Uh, and I was stripped naked. Uh, I was uh, made wear my underpants over my head. They put a, a bucket of litter over the top of my head that went, uh, the litter bin over my head, and the rubbish went down on the floor, and they made me pick that up in my mouth from the floor. Uh, they asked me did I want a drink. He handed me a beaker of water, and as soon as I put my hand out to get it, he, he spilt it on the floor, and he accused me of doing it. So he kicked the legs from under me, made me go down, I licked the water off the floor. And in actual fact, it was nice with the, the, the system I was going through. They, they made me run on the spot. They made me do press-ups. They, made, they bent me over a radiator. I mean, it was constant, the kicking, the slapping, the punching. Uh, my ear on the left side of my head, I could actually see it with perverted vision out of my side of my eye. My head was that badly shaped. Mm. Uh, and and that was the, 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 the system that they went through. Then there was the mental torture of uh, making and writing statements down uh, about murders, uh, and I remember the first line of one of them, I, Bernard O'Connor, wish to clear the following murder off my chest. Never forget that line. And he then threatened that he, he asked me to sign it, and I said, I'm not signing something that I had nothing to do with. And he said, uh, we're going to take this into court and tell the judge that you made this statement voluntarily while in custody and you refused to sign it. And then he wrote another one to convince the judge that if he made one, he made two. And... Uh, and the judge would believe them and not believe me, and that would get me 35 years in, in jail. My, oh my. Bernard, come to that date, will you, for me? April 83, and you might not be around to write the book or talk to anyone had what planned to happen happened. Yes, um, after I won the, the court case uh, against the RUC, I took a civil action against the RUC and won the case, they decided that uh, they, I wasn't going to uh, to get away with it. So um, 
I went to mass in the in the Grand Monastery in Enniskillen. Uh, actually, Father Brian Darcy, the the famous priest, was actually saying the mass that Sunday, and he, being a fanatical GA supporter like myself, he spoke after mass about uh, that he was heading to Croke Park that Sunday afternoon to see history being made, and that was the National League final between Down and Armagh for the first time two Ulster teams were playing in it. So I came home from mass that. Sunday and I said to my wife uh, we'll put the children in the car, we'll drive up to Dublin, we'll go and visit an uncle of mine that lives in Rahini, Uncle Benny and we'll leave the children there and we'll go and watch the match in Croke Park um, I was to take a driving lesson that afternoon where I was a part time driving instructor apart from my teaching and um, I had a young lad out of Bleak Pottery where I was to teach him to drive that afternoon at 3 o'clock, I rang him and I cancelled that lesson if I had taken that lesson that afternoon, I would have been dead because they had planned to assassinate me. I'd seen a suspicious activity in hindsight, looking back the previous Sunday when I was with that lad. But um, that Sunday, they shot another guy instead of me. And uh, I went to that court case and they were charged with the attempted murder of me. And uh, one was uh, a part-time member of the UDR and the other was a serving member of the British Army. My. And, the re- and the revolver they used was one of a serving member of the RUC. So there was collusion at its best. And they knew your movements. They had uh, staked it out and you would not have been around. But sadly, another young man lost his life. This really did impact on your life because y- your marriage ended. Yes, it um the the whole trauma of this uh, at home. We had three girls in our family who were uh, abused by the police as a result of this. And uh, one of those girls is seriously ill at the moment, mentally in in the Oma Hospital, where she has never recovered. She was only 12 years of age at the time. So that was the the psychological abuse that they, and the physical abuse uh, and the mental abuse that they, they put on our family, with the result that... Um, my wife could take no more of it, and I could understand that. And our marriage broke up, and um, it was a, a very traumatic period for me. Um, I was deeply involved in um, things that relieved me, and that was I was deeply involved in the Boy Scout movement, and I started a Scout Brass Band, which became very famous. So the music, and uh, I also became principal of a school, and all these things began to give me a release uh, and escape. I also did an awful lot of counselling. I I received counselling for a number of years as a result of that, which ended up in me when um, I wanted to pursue a career after I retired from teaching and I went to DCU in Dublin, did a master's degree in counselling and psychotherapy and that has been the most rewarding thing I ever did in my life because now I uh, work at that uh, practice in Dundalk I've been with Accord and Dundalk for 20 years and now I'm with Counseling Connections in Seatown Place and I work with couples and people with serious difficult problems that can't cope and uh, being and having come through the, the trauma that I came through in life, I felt this was a good career for me to be able to help others. Mm, you've certainly made a second career uh, for yourself, for sure. And you have a new woman by your side, Roisin, as well. You mention her in the book and thank her and all of your family as well. I think of your daughter today, that's Nullig you're talking about, isn't it? That's correct. Mm, yeah, yeah we, we think of her today, as you mention her, and, and, and wish her well. 
Look, you took them to court. You, you, you went all the way with this. You made history. You won. You, you showed them up for what they were. But my God almighty, you were just one of so many others, weren't you? Yes. I mean, this this system, I was one of thousands, but I was one of the ones that, I mean, a huge number of people were forced into signing statements that they had nothing to do, um, nothing, and they were never involved. And I mean, this this was the pressure that they put on people. And I mean, there was an awful lot of people weren't, uh, I would have to say, as lucky as I was to be able to get out of there and not spend the rest of my life in long cash. And that's unfortunately what happened to a number of others. But that was the system, and they didn't care who who they brought in. They didn't care who they abused. Teachers were, were among many who they wanted to take in because they felt that teachers were in a classroom where they would hear information from young kids in the classroom or know about their fathers or their brothers, and they would have information that would be useful to them. So they, they arrested a lot of teachers in their process in doing this. You were featured extensively, I know, in previous years on BBC, and this case made national and international headlines in the press as well, all over, radio, television and print, uh, you name it. I'm, I'm curious, you'll celebrate your 80th birthday uh, next year. It, it, it's taken you a while to really write this. What at this time, Bernard? Why now? Well, I've always, I always intended writing the book, but... Uh, COVID was one of the things that sort of gave me the, the time to sit down and say, well, you're doing nothing else, so now I'd be able to, to spend the time doing that. But secondly, uh, Boris Johnson tried to bring in, or is it trying to bring in an amnesty for all the British soldiers and police in Northern Ireland to commit crimes and uh, to let them off. And I sort of felt that the actual Castle Ray exposure was never fully developed and people never actually got an opportunity to tell their story. So I, I felt it was very important to to let the people know exactly what was ha- actually happening, what was torture like, what was interrogation like. I mean, interrogation was to get people to make statements and statements meant convictions. Once you wrote a statement, you were going to get convicted or sign a statement. So the whole process was sign statements and we'd convict you. So I felt it was very, very important at this stage of my life to to be able to put it down in print and let everybody see exactly what did go on with the RUC in Northern Ireland. Mm, and you can dress it up any way you like. It wasn't apartheid. There was gerrymandering. If you were of a faith, you were not able to make progress in life or society. And they, they, they are facts. And, you know, this interrogation and the treatment that was meted out to people is fact as well and to expunge it from memory would be totally totally wrong indeed in the whole aspect of the reconciliation uh, process anyway look um you're right, uh, but you're right about the, the i mean when when i was uh, teaching um i mean and then a skill in there in county fermanagh which would have been a predominantly nationalist county they there were 72 school bus drivers 70 of them were protestant and the majority of schools were Catholic. They, there were 14 ward sisters in the hospital, in the Iron Hospital in Eskillen. 13 of them were Protestant. One was a Catholic, but she was the night sister. They, you know, it was, this, this was going on. Every time you applied for a job, you had to state your religion. Mm. There were 56 boys in my school, in my class in my school, in St. Michael's Primary School in Eskillen when I was 10, 11 years of age. 
Only six of those remained in Enniskill. We were educating children to emigrate. And that was the, the, the thing that spurred me into the civil rights movement, was to educate children to stay in Northern Ireland, to get jobs in Northern Ireland, have a right to the jobs in Northern Ireland. When you look for a house, you got a house in an area that was gerrymandered. So if you were a nationalist, you were given a house in an area where there were anything up to 1,800 people to elect people there. While in the unionist areas, six, 700 people were electing unionist representatives. And the other part of that was that if you had a large number of properties or a large, uh, a large estate, you got a number of votes. So it wasn't just one vote. You could have 9, 10, 11 votes mm. according to the rateable value of the property you had. Mm. While nationalists, if they didn't own property, some of them didn't get votes if they were renting property. So that was the campaign of civil rights, to give everybody the right to just one vote and an equal right to that. Yes, and, you know, things have changed enormously and continue to change and will continue to change for the better. And you've been part of the change movement, I have to say. The book is called Freeing the Truth. It'll be launched at the Old Jail in Dundalk tomorrow evening at half past seven and Bernard will be there to talk to anybody and everyone who shows up. All welcome. And the book is available from uh, bookshops in Dundalk, Easons in Cavan, Waterstones, Amazon and Kindle or directly from Bernard at boconnor3 at hotmail.com. I've enjoyed speaking to you. I thoroughly enjoyed the book and I wish you well with the launch and everything else, Bernard. Thank you very much, Jerry. I appreciate the call. Now, Paul Murphy. Hello again. We haven't been chatting in a little while. Hello, Paul. Hello, Jerry. How are you, Jerry? I'm really, really good. Well, we had to have a chat with you today. We just had to when we saw your frustration on social media in the last, what, 24, 48 hours. Paul, what happened? Jerry, I, I, I'm very reluctant, of course. I'm not going to mention, uh, I had a bus trip. Yeah. And I called it the bus ride to hell, you know, because um, because of the rudeness of the driver and his attitude wasn't very good, in my opinion. Um, I'm not going to give the route number or the time of departure of the bus or the date. As the as the mafia said, this ain't personal; it's business. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> I love it. But I will say, and I have to clarify this because we might be casting aspersions on others. It is a national bus company we're talking about here. Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, and it is a route here in the northeast uh, that began in Drada. That's all we'll say. Okay, go on. Tell us. Yes. Tell us what happened. So it, it started really, you know, it's it's getting on to dark uh, the other day and I'm waiting for the bus at the bus station. Mm. And the bus the bus pulled in, the bus I, I was going to travel on pushed, pulled in and uh, the door was open and I went to get on. And then I discovered the driver was standing beside me mm. and he said, I'm not ready yet. Stand over there five minutes and didn't say please or thank you or anything else. Mm. So, OK, I waited and then I got on the bus. And... Uh, I, I was able to board pretty successfully. But then when he was ready to pull out of the yard onto the Donore Road, um, several people ran alongside the bus, banging on the side of the bus. He had left them behind. They were standing uh, nearer to the bus station, 
and he was in a bay further up the yard. And every one of those was berated when they got on the bus for holding him up and all sorts of things. And there was a, a woman with a buggy and a baby trying to get on board. And they were all, you know, given out to in, in a very loud voice. So I said, God, it's a bit much. So that started the thing and, and it didn't stop every... Every person, I think, who travelled on that bus got this got this man's tongue the other day. He was quite, you know, unusually for bus errand drivers. He was a bus errand driver. Uh, he was very rude. The vast majority of bus drivers are very, very um, courteous and mm. very helpful, I find. I use the bus a lot now, but I have to. But uh, the, uh, I couldn't understand his attitude. A young woman got on. And she was very polite. She was in her early 20s. And uh, he said, um, you know, he, he uh, she said that she had money on her card. Now, I don't know what this meant. She had her phone out and she was trying to show him in a polite. And he berated her. No, there is no money on that. And he wasn't pleased or thank you or anything else. Then she was told to sit down. And then halfway through the journey, he was stopped in traffic. And he ran back down the bus and shouted at her, are you going to pay the fare now? <laughs> I couldn't believe. I was afraid to look at him for fear, you know, that if I looked back at him, I, I'd turn into Lot's wife and turn into a pillar, a pillar of salt. <laughs> you know, I don't mean to laugh because this is serious, but it, it, I, I honestly thought there was a Monty Python sketch, sketch uh, that you're describing to me and not something in real life or reality. Did you have any more truck with him personally or did you just, were you glad to get off and disembark? Oh, oh I had a bit more truck with him. There, there was a man who, who, there was a man who, in the dark, who overshot the runway, if you like, he, he overshot his, his stop. Mm. And he was berated. Why didn't you ring the bell? Why didn't you ring the bell? And uh, the man said, well, he made some excuse. And at, at that stage, I said to I said to the I was sitting two rows back, on, if you like, on the opposite side, on the left-hand side of the bus as you look forward. Mm. I said, driver, you need to calm down. I am calm. I time to do my job, and you're t- telling me this and that. So I said, "No, you you, you need to tra- you need to calm down. You're you're getting too excited here." <laughs> so it went on like that, and then he, he, he had another incident, and then I, I I eventually said to him, "Look, look, driver, you you're not behaving very well here, and you need to pull yourself up." And uh, he he was um, he was most rude. And uh, I, I had to tell him, I said, my, my late daddy was a bus driver. And he didn't behave like you. <laughs> <laughs> so you know how. And it's in uh, your family previously. You know the business and the way it should be. So this, Paul, the reason you took uh, to social media to uh, to talk about this and you're with me today is really, you know, it, it's the height of um, bad customer service, you'd have to say. Oh, it is. But you see, I, I was used to travelling. I mean, for instance, a, a man a man in Bus Aaron retired recently, Aidan Daly. And that man was the epitome of good manners. Mm. And and by the way, I, I'm sending my good wishes to Aidan, who retired after 44 years lately. Mm. And his, his father, Paddy, is still alive. And he worked with my father many years ago. 
So he, I mean, these men were absolutely terrific manners. Yes. The, the man I came across badly needs retraining. As simple as that. Paul, you mentioned yourself, you are now a frequent user of public transport and buses especially. This, the exception to the rule, would you say? Oh, it's, 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 it's most definitely the exception of, to the rule. Ah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the vast majority of people, and men and women drivers, there's no problem. And sure, look, I'm a quiet person. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be raising my voice with anybody unless there was a problem. Mm. So in a calm voice the other day, I told him, you know, you're getting too excited. You want to calm down a bit. Mm. Of course, the more I said that, the more excited he got. (laughs) You are pouring fuel on the flames, Mr. Paul Morphy. But you are, I would say, always about you. You, You're calm and collected in in general terms. And, you know, your voice is soothing and comforting as well. You don't raise it much. And you were just making the point. And you were fanning the flames with this lad altogether. Um, Did anybody else say anything? You know, people are very reluctant. They just nearly accept, you know, this type of thing. But it's not right to accept it. No, it's not rightly accepted. And probably, uh, you know, everybody else, I think, was totally cowed on the bus. Mm. I mean, a man got off at my stop with me. And I, I said to him, what do you think of all that? Oh, he said, I was afraid to open my mouth at your man, he said. <laughs> yes. And that's what that's, most that's people what would do, Paul. They cow down. They don't want hassle in their lives. They just want to make the trip, get to their destination uh, and not raise the hair on it. Well, let me tell you, you've mentioned them. It is Bus Aaron we are talking about. We have put a request uh, into Bus Aaron for, you know, the reaction to this. And we still await their reply. And I will be glad to give them the floor here to reply or what, see whatever they have to say whenever they want to. But it is important to say that in, in the trips and all the trips you've made, you found uh, the vast, vast majority of bus air and other bus drivers, women and men, to be totally helpful, Paul. Agreed. And, you know, this man needs to take some lessons in manners from... John, please. Maybe, maybe John, please will give him a few tips, you know. <laughs> don't, and don't mention, don't mention the war. Oh, absolutely, absolutely <laughs> not. Anyway, Paul, listen. Thank you for telling us your tale. Perhaps it raises the hair with other people as well. And you know, the whole thing of 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 being pleasant and cor- courteous and helpful to people when you are in customer facing jobs and responsible jobs, it is the essence of those roles. And if you don't have it, well, perhaps we have to say you're in the wrong job. Paul Murphy, you're in the right one. Always have been. Thank you for joining us to tell us the story. Thank you, Jerry. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's Paul Murphy there, former editor of the Draw Independent, freelancer now, working with the uh, Mead Chronicle 2 and others and his experience on a bus. It's not like Paul, I have to say. When he raises this, it obviously was a serious matter and really sad to hear that Somebody would treat people like that on a bus journey. Ed Sheeran and Bad Habits is new. And I think his voice has changed a little bit. What do you think, Louise? Do you think his voice has changed slightly from his older stuff? We featured him, of course, as Artist of the Week. Do you not get that listening to him there? Style has changed. Yeah, his voice changed a little bit. Anyway, anyone looking for a Christmas present hint, I'd love to see... Ed Sheeran. I really would love to see Ed Sheeran. I can just imagine you dropping <laughs> hints around now. That's very bad habit you have there, Mary. <laughs> I'm dropping the biggest hint ever today here on, on radio. <laughs> Louise, we just got the response 
from Bus Erin. Mm-hmm. It just in, it's very timely, and it says this. Bus Erin is aware of a complaint made by a passenger on Route 190 service between Drogheda and Trim on Monday the 22nd of November. We very much regret the negative experience reported by this passenger and are fully investigating the complaint. We thank the passenger for making us aware of this incident and will advise customers if they have any issues with our services to contact our customer care department on 0818836611 or you can email customercare at busairin.ie. Do you see that response? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Bus Aaron. That is what we need when issues are raised. You know, at times you have to wait for them Very fast and they come back and say nothing. That deals with the issue. Well done to Bus Aaron and thank you for that statement that they've just issued to us. Ah, Louise. Do you know the social or personal columns in the newspapers, mm-hmm. the back of the Irish Times I'm thinking of? Yeah. I always read them. I love reading them. You know what I mean? They're advertising, they're breaks away, the family notice. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. There's a mix and gathering of them there. The engagement has occurred. Yes, or, yeah. baby arrives, all that. Well, well, what about this one in the Irish Times? I think it's today, today or yesterday. It says, Cahill O'Neill, architect, is taking a day off work to celebrate his 91st birthday. Brilliant. Went viral. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. It's a bit like you in 30 years, Jerry. She <laughs> said, admire your confidence. <laughs> but they keep making them new pills to keep me going. <laughs> Never mind 30, 10. Anyway, uh, it's great, isn't it? He's yeah. 91. And you can just imagine, I'd say he's a man that loves his job, loves his work and oh, never Oh, he said misses. if he gives up work, he'd just die. I'd imagine Like so. literally he said no way he's mm. keeping going with this I think his son if I read right took over the business so Did he's he? carrying on with him 91 mm. and a day off of the birthday no frills or thrills or anything else <laughs> isn't he a great man Carl O'Neill happy birthday from all of us here Late Lunch LMFM Radio lots of text today Hi Jerry. I was listening to Sarah at the top of your show I had breast cancer and I can't say enough about Lorraine and Alison I had the pleasure of being looked after by both of them obviously I'd say they're probably in the oncology unit either in Bowman or Drogheda thanks indeed for that message somebody else saying the bus driver must have had a bad day others saying I'm familiar with that uh, uh, situation. I've come across it a couple of times with a couple of messages like that as well and here's a nice one. Hi Jerry. I had my car in for the NCT in Mullingar yesterday. A few hundred yards from the NCT centre I heard a snap and some smoke billowed out from the engine and into the car. I'm in my late 60s and I was really scared. I got out of the car was approached by two young chaps wanting to help. One was from Beliver the other from Delvin. Luckily I was stopped outside Speedy Park garage and the lovely people there took in my car and fixed it for me and the two young fellas hung round uh, waiting for me and insisted on driving me home believe me Jerry, there are wonderful people out there only we don't hear about them I just want to say thanks a million to those lovely people I met yesterday says Nula isn't that a lovely message and well done there there is more goodness than badness in the world that's for sure now my artist of the week our Fleetwood Mac. And how do you follow an album like Rumours? Well, Tusk was the next one. And though it shifted only 4 million copies, sales disappointed the band. And listen to this. They blamed radio station chain RKO in America. Guess why? RKO actually played that album pre-release and millions of people taped it. I remember taping from the radio myself many moons ago and they reckoned it hit sales badly. God help them, they only sold 4 million. Album number 13 called Mirage fared much better sales-wise. They didn't let it out beforehand. 
And after the tour which followed in 1982, the band went their respective ways pursuing solo careers. And it wasn't until five years later, 1987, that the lineup that recorded Rumours put down one more album called Tango in the Night. It was a big seller with many hits as well, the best since Rumours. However, before they could tour on the back of the album, there was a big bus stop between Buckingham and Nick's. Buckingham quit and they cobbled together a lineup for the tour. They did release a Greatest Hits album, however, in the following year, 88, after a reconciliation with Buckingham. Into the 90s now, and members came and went, but the Buckingham, Nicks and McVee's lineup did eventually reunite at the request of President Bill Clinton for his inaugural ball in 1993. We'll pick the story up from there tomorrow. Today, it's back to 77 and this big US number one from Rumours. Fleetwood Mac, my artist of the week on Late Lunch this week. Oh, they have a very special sound, haven't they? They really do. That streams there from the classic album, uh, Rumours. And we'll have more from and about Fleetwood Mac on Late Lunch at this time tomorrow afternoon. Clonmore is a community-based respite residential and outreach support service. It's so well known. It's been operating for uh, many, many years and it's based around the Navin Kells and Ashbourne areas in County Meath. But they need assistance at this time. They support 65 families with respite care over the course of 12 months. Their service manager, Ned Rispin, is with me. Hello again, Ned. Hi, hi, Terry. Thanks for joining me. What's the problem? What do you need fixing? Well, we we have a respite house based on the Commons Road in Navan, and it basically uh, it was built in the 1980s. And you know yourself, anything built in the 80s mightn't have the best uh, insulation or um, general maintenance. So basically, the the the, the house is quite old. Uh, it needs a lot of. Uh, TLC to bring it up to kind of basic standards. Now, the people that come to the respite house are cosy and uh, we use a lot of oil. And I suppose we're trying to do the bit for the environment as well because we spend a serious amount of money on oil because there's very little insulation in the house. And so our pass the bat on kindness challenge is to uh, put it out there to people, uh, do something kind for somebody either yourself or somebody that you know and uh, as well as uh, donating to this cause. Okay, so the 80s is a while ago as I know and wear and tear alone, never mind uh, the requirements now with climate change and to uh, refit uh, houses and properties, it is a huge thing and badly needs to be done and if you get this done of course you're going to save on the old heating front as well so it's a a win-win all round. So look at Anybody can just do an act of kindness, do something kind to somebody today that you know or maybe don't know or family member outside your family. Do the act of kindness and then what? When you do it, make a donation. Yeah, uh, basically, I, I, I use myself as an example. So uh, I, my act of kindness was that I bought flowers for somebody that's important to me and uh, I donated to the uh, Go, GoFundMe page, uh, Pass the Bat On, and I nominated two people. Uh, I nominated two of my brothers, um, 
uh, Seamus and Danny and uh, hopefully they'll they'll pass the baton on to somebody else. OK, so I see what you're doing. This is really like a chain reaction. You do it and you need to get one or two others and say to them, come on, you do it too and ask them to pass on. And by that, uh, you're building up the donation pool as well. OK, so how do people, what's the, 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 the simplest way uh, people can go on and actually donate to uh, bringing this premises up to speed? So the easiest way is just to go onto Google and Google Clonmore Mead and our Facebook will come up and all of the information is on that. Or we have a website, clonmore.ie. Okay. C-L-A-N-N-M-O-R. And I suppose the thing about this is that if somebody does an act of kindness, and they can do it to themselves as well, because we're we're all living in a difficult situation at the moment. So if we do an act of kindness, that's going to be rewarding for ourselves. And then we also are giving to, um, and Clonmore is a charity uh, uh, funded almost, or sorry, set up almost 40 years ago by families who needed a respite break for their loved one. Mm. And uh, we work with people that have an intellectual disability and I suppose family need a break as well. And that's what this house does. And so now the house needs a break. Yeah, well said indeed, and it does, uh, and hasn't it stood the test of time, and hasn't Clon Moore as well, all the people you've helped over the years, and that respite is just so critical to service users and their families, as you say. Any weird or wonderful acts you've heard of yet, or are you keeping a track of them, or do you just let people uh, batter along themselves? Well, some people uh, have been posting up on Facebook the kind of things that they've done, so... uh some people have made cakes for work. Uh, other people have uh, drawn pieces of art for other people. In, for other people, um, One person has decided to uh, clear out their wardrobe and give it to a charity uh, and also to donate to the GoFundMe page. Uh, so there's lots and lots of stuff. Uh, basically anything, any mm. kind of, any act of kindness um, for yourself or for somebody else. That's really what you need to do. And then uh, the double whammy is that if you support this organisation and the refurbish of this house, you're helping the environment. Of course you are. There's a win, win, win. There's three of them now all round for yourself, for Clan Moore and for the environment and more besides when, when you mention that. But look, at uh, you are there many, many years. You help so many families as well. You have a great network. But look... Uh, we wanted to give you a little shout out today on LMFM Radio to encourage people to en- to support Clon more at this time. And again, it's C L A N N M O R. The website is there or Facebook. You'll find them there. Pass the baton of kindness is the name of uh, the challenge. Thank you for joining me on the show. I wish you well, Ned, and I'm sure you're going to get a tremendous response. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me today. Take care of yourself. That's the service manager with Clonmore Residential and Respite Centre in County Meath, Ned Rispin, rounding off our show this afternoon. Tomorrow on Late Lunch Thursday, I'm joined by Dr. Tara Shine. She's a wonderful, wonderful lady. She's really switched on when it comes to environmental matters. She's regarded internationally. She's one of her own, but she's a brilliant woman. She's joining me on the show tomorrow. Declan Bailey is here. It's Thursday. What's happening Friday? 
Black Friday. Declan Bailey, our techie guy, has lots of recommendations with us. Big savings to be had on Black Friday. And he'll tell you all about them tomorrow. And Fiona Daly Perez is a young woman who's lost her sight. And she tells us what it's like going from light to darkness. We'll have more on Fleetwood Mac and more besides as well. All we need is you tomorrow afternoon from 1.30. Have a lovely Wednesday evening. Take care of yourselves. Eddie Caffrey is coming next with The Drive. Wonderful music and lots more here on LMFM Radio. Stay with us, but do come back for another Late Lunch. Thursday, half one. See you then. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drada and Dogan Cabin. Order your new Dacia Duster or the all-new Dacia Sandero and Stepway. Guaranteed delivery and low-rate APR finance. Visit blackstonemotors.ie. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.